If you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of Genesis, chapter 11, and uh, we'll be focusing on the account of Babel, and then chapter 12, the call of Abram, and then I'll also read Matthew 28. Acts 1, verse 6 to 11 will not be included in the reading. You can read that uh, on your own time. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Genesis 11, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that your spirit would graciously open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that you would soften our hearts to receive your word, such as a seed goes into good soil and produces a fruit that we too I would receive your word and by your spirit produce fruit in our lives. We ask this all for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. In Warren St. John's book, Rammer Jammer, Yellowhammer, A Journey into the Heart of Fan Mania, he chronicles uh, the RVers who follow the Alabama Crimson Tide that go to every single game. Every home game, they're there in the RV parking lots. Uh, in any away game, they get on, on their RVs and they're there. Um, if a game's on a Saturday, they will show up on a Wednesday. And that's just what you do when you are a mega fan. And what this book shows, it really teaches us a lot about worship. Um, and as you read this book, which was required reading for me, 
Um, he, he chronicles people uh, that he comes across as he tries to understand the heart of fandom. For example, there's Ray Pradit, an Episcopal minister, minister who watches the games, Alabama football games, on television that is placed at the altar as he performs weddings. But probably the best one, and perhaps one you're familiar with because this made a commercial recently, are the Reese's. The Reese's haven't missed an Alabama game, home or away, in I think 37 years as this book was written. In fact, they even missed their own daughter's wedding because she, according to him, planned her wedding on the third Saturday in October. And everybody knows that the third Saturday in October is Alabama-Tennessee football weekend. If you're wondering, this sounds crazy, you're actually normal. You don't have to be a fan of anything to know that this is, this is, this is crazy. So there's two reasons why I start here. One, it's a great way to review what we've talked about in this mini-series on worship. To remind us of what we've said so far, we're going to end it today. But what have we said so far about worship? One, worship is giving our whole selves to something wholly or completely. Right? We said that we all worship something. And what we worship is what we think is most valuable, worthy of our time and efforts and everything. Lastly, we said that worship does something to us. It changes us. It causes us to see going to a game being more valuable than your own daughter's wedding. But worship also does something else, and this is where we're going to land the plane for our time uh, and discussion about worship, is that worship sends us out. And this is something that actually fandom can help us with, because I know that you've noticed that as you drive around the country, and even as you drive around College Park, you notice things on people's cars, things that say, go Terps, or perhaps go whatever your favorite team is if you have one. What is that? That is going out and reflecting what it is you value. And as Christians, as the church, we're called to do the same thing. We're called not just to come in here and worship God as we talked about last week, but to be sent out, to go out, and to reflect the wonders and the beauties of God for his purposes, for his glory. In this way, worship and mission go hand in hand. And that's what I want us to see this morning. This morning's really uh, just almost a homily of sorts. You got a sermon and a half last week. Uh, so uh, hopefully just one thing to look at uh, the mission of God, that we serve a missional God, and to draw the simple implication of what that means for us as people who worship that God as we end our time here. So let's look at that. Um, as we come to the story of Babel, which is the last story of what we call the primeval section of Genesis, which is chapters 1 to 11. And in those chapters, they cover all of the creation account, as you were familiar with, the fall of man in chapter 3, where sin entered the world. And we see that these 11 chapters are actually unique, and they're unique in in ways that may not be obvious to you. They're they're unique in their genre and how they're written. Uh, especially as we think about the rest of Genesis beginning in chapter 12 on. And this matters regarding the way that we actually read and are to understand chapters 111. That is, they are a bit of a prologue to the, um, that, that ends in chapter 11 and quickly brings us up to speed on a significant transition moment in the mission of God, which is the call of Abram or Abraham. 
What is going on as we approach chapter 11 in the story of Babel is that God is in the process of, quote, reclaiming creation, according to Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright, after the fall. And as we leave chapter 9, after the flood uh, where God covenants with Noah to never destroy the earth again, the continuation of God's mission to reclaim creation, if you go and you read chapter 9, you'll notice that it, has, it, it feels like a second creation account. It has a lot of the same things in chapters 1 and 2. But the sense is, is that as we move on from there, it, it, it feels as though we're back on track and, and headed in the right direction far as God's mission is concerned. But then we get to Babel. And what is happening in this story that we just read is instead of creation and mankind going out to, to do as God has called them to do in, their, in its creational mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion and subdue the world, and in that way reflecting the character of God and the glory of God everywhere they go, What's happening? They're being drawn in. Everything is coming in and consolidating for the sake of itself. Instead of going out and reflecting God's glory, they are coming in to make a name for themselves. Instead of making God's name great. Mankind has come, as verse 4 says, uh, in, in to build a name for themselves. That is, in, in their pride and their arrogance and ambition, they choose to build something that would reflect their own glory, their own name, and thus abandon God's story, his purposes, his name. And so what underscores this in, Babel, in the Babel account that we just read is that five times the phrase, over the face of the whole earth, is found. You might have noted that. And why? Because the creation mandate of being fruitful and multiplying, of subduing and having dominion that we read, we didn't read it today, but that you read in Genesis 1 and 2, and that you even read again in Genesis 9, in that second creation account of sorts, of going out to cover all the earth, that is what is in view as we read the story of Babel. But the heart of mankind does what? It reveals its true self in this tower city. And so God, in an act of mercy, puts a stop to this endeavor by confusing their tongue and scattering them across the land. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. From our modern sensibilities, it might be difficult to discern what the problem is. One people? One language? Sounds good, right? That's what we want, right? That's what we're going for, right? Well, yes, if your motives are pure. <laughs> and see, that's the problem. What Babel shows us is that the flood hasn't changed the heart of mankind. With the ability to do amazing things, mankind still possesses the power to what? Turn God's gifts into curses. Babel is really the antithesis of God's mission over the earth, a huddling mass that is literally turned inward upon itself, focused on its own ambition and name. They long to make their name great. And as long as this is the case with mankind, God's mission to reclaim creation after the fall, will have to come through another way. 
Enter chapter 12, the call of Abram, Abraham. In the call of Abram, God calls a missional people who through Abram will, will his blessings to the nations come and will God's name be made great. See the switch. With the word go from chapter 12, verse 1, Abraham is elected into the missional service of God. God tells Abram that not only will he make him into a great nation, but through him all of the nations, there it is, will be blessed over all the earth. So this is the context in which the call of Abram sits. And notice its differences and similarities to Babel. One, the mission of reclaiming creation over all the earth. It's still intact as God moves into Genesis 12 and calls Abram. The difference, though, is how God's mission will move forward. As God ends the Babel account, scattering and dispersing the people who sought to make their name great, by contrast with Abram, God calls a single man and his family to himself, who through him, God would make great his own name. And this is where we get Israel and its mission. But as Michael Williams puts it, the call of Abraham is God's missional answer to this problem, referring to Babel. They sought to build God out of the world by their nation building. God, however, will build a nation that will represent him in the world. God's election of Abraham and inclusion of him within his redemptive purpose is the divine solution to this dilemma. In other words, our God is a God who gathers and sends out for his purposes, for his glory. He is a missional God. Now, when we get to the New Testament, has anything changed? Yes and no. Yes, and that God's redemptive mission is fulfilled in Jesus to reclaim all creation. Jesus is the one who comes through Abraham and is the blessing to the nations and the salvation that he accomplishes and now offers by faith in him, as far as the curse is found. But is that it? No. The next leg of the mission continues. And where does it continue? Who does it continue through? the church, until he returns to make all things new. In other words, God is still calling a people to himself to send them on mission for his purposes, for his glory, for his name. Let's hear Matthew 28 again in this context. And Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did Jesus say, stop? Mission's over? No. Just as God called Abram and said, go. So he calls his disciples, his followers, and says, go. See, God is still on mission calling a people to himself so that what they might go out for his purposes to reflect his glory. And he's doing this through his church. As one pastor puts it, God's mission, or the church's mission, you could say, is always communal. And his community is always missional. That's always stuck with me. 
God's mission is always communal. communal. That is, he is gathering a people to himself. But that community is always missional, meaning it goes out to serve and to reflect that wonder, the glory that is this creator God. All right. We serve a missional God. What does this have to do with worship? I thought this was part three, Ryan. What does this have to do with worship? Well, as I said earlier, worship and mission go hand in hand. Worship and mission go hand in hand. Who or what you worship shapes the mission. The mission always reflects what you worship. Consider the fan base. As one scholar puts it, we become like what we worship. So if we worship power, right, we become more ruthless. Consider, consider a dictator. <laughs> I don't know many nice dictators, although I'm sure there's probably one. If we worship money, if that is our thing that we most value, then we begin to what? See everything in dollars and cents. People are no longer relationships for us to cultivate. They are objects to, to, to they are means to our end. We become like what we worship. Fans who idolize musicians or movie stars begin to what? Sound like them, look like them, even talk like them. And this is the way it's supposed to be. This is by design. We are supposed to become like what we worship. And now you see the problem. We've thrown out the one that we are supposed to worship for other things. But part of God's mission of reclaiming creation is what? Reordering that. This reordering our desires. That we may come in here and worship Him. So that what we worship, what we get our, give our whole selves to holy, we become like. Worship and mission go hand in hand. Therefore, if we are truly worshiping a God who is missional, we will become what? A missional people. If we are worshiping a God who gathers and sends out, we will gather, we will go, we will send out. And not for our purposes, not for our name's sake, not to make our names great, but to make his name great for his glory. And what the Spirit wants to do then through our worship, and especially through our worship in us, is he, is to, he wants to send us out as a people on mission to reflect the loveliness and the beauty of Christ as far as the curse is found. And in that way, if we reflect back to last week, we don't just come in here as consumers of this. We just take in the loveliness and the beauty of Christ and, and, and it's, it, the message to us and the grace and the mercy that we love to hear about. It's not just, we're not just consumers of that. God's intent is that this would move you to something. We go out for his missional purposes. What does this look like? How do we do that? Well, it, there's 10,000 different ways that this, this could look like, but primarily in the way that we love. In the way that you love sacrificially in your family, marriage, friendships, employees, neighbors, even your enemies, as Jesus calls us. Why? 
Because you worship a God who loves sacrificially. What you worship, you become like. What else? In the way grace is being worked into your hearts towards others. Because why? You worship a God of grace who has been gracious to you. You become more like what you worship. In the way that forgiveness grows more and more in you because you worship a God who has what? Forgiven you. Again, worship and mission hand in hand. As we said last week, Christ-centered worship reminds us all the time just how much we've been forgiven and at what cost. Even in the way that you grow more comfortable in your own skin because God's love and the gospel and worship is shaping and changing you, you know who you are, but more importantly, you know whose you are. And he gets the final word over you each day. It's an attractive thing to see that in somebody. Where's that come from? Worship. Worship and mission go hand in hand. You become like what you worship, and what the Spirit wants to do through our worship in us is send us out as people on mission. To reflect the loveliness and the beauty of Christ as far as the curse is found. As New Testament scholar Tim Tom Wright writes, the key to mission is always worship. The key to mission is always worship. You can only be reflecting the love of God into the world if you are worshiping the true God who creates the world out of overflowing, self-giving love. The more that you look at that God and celebrate that love, the more you have to be reflecting that overflowing, self-giving love into the world. So this is where I want to end our short time talking about worship. That wherever you are with this topic, whatever we're going to be as a church, that that as we begin to get on the same page with some familiar or similar terms, that that, that we know and we're on the same page, that that worship has as its end to send us out, but also to keep bringing us back and send us back out. That we may reflect the wonders and the beauties of God himself to the watching world. And so let's end with a few questions on this. How is worship shaping us for mission as God's people? I'd love for the members of Wallace to be thinking about that with me over the course of the next several months and years. How is worship shaping us for mission as God's people? Am I becoming more like the missional God that I worship in Jesus Christ? What should that look like? Great question for small groups. Let's talk about that. What are we reflecting to others about the God that we worship? Do we recognize that what happens in here and what happens out there, those go together because worship and mission go hand in hand? What are we reflecting to others about the God we worship? What about God's character being shaped in me do others see? And what aspects of God's character in me uh, do people not see? And how might I be able to pray towards that end and ask others to pray towards that end as I'm growing up in Christ, part of his body of believers, worshiping the one true God? Where is your worship of God sending you? And another way to ask that question is, who am I serving? And none of these questions, by the way, are here to shame us. They're diagnostic questions. They're questions we should be asking all the time. And it's not 
It's not, you're thinking, uh-oh, the pastor doesn't think we're doing enough. Not it either. I just got here. I don't know. I hope you're asking me these questions. Not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian. We're in this together. Let's ask them together. Who am I serving? Who am I avoiding? Who are we as a church avoiding? Are we scared to ask that question? Where am I stuck? Where are we stuck? And how might we begin to pray towards that end as we come in here every Sunday and worship this powerful God who is both the creator and sustainer of all the universe, who has given us his Holy Spirit for what? Mission. Let us ask these questions and let us seek the Lord's wisdom and guidance through his Holy Spirit to shape us into the people that he's asking us to be for this place. Otherwise, our worship is completely disconnected to our mission. And that's not the church. Some might call that a country club. I'm not calling Wallace a country club, just a distinction. See, they've got to go hand in hand. What is that? Here's the good news, though, and where we'll end it. The Holy Spirit promised to work this in you. So we don't leave here today wondering, okay, got to try harder. This is the work of the Spirit in you. It's not, it's not a, an aspect of justification where, okay, we have come to the table and we, have, we recognize that salvation by grace and God has been gracious to us and now it's time for me to pull up my bootstraps and get after it. You need to get after it, but the Holy Spirit is the one working these things in you. He is bearing the fruit of his people. That is the promise to you. That is where we rest as we come to the table in just a minute, knowing that this is happening. Different paces, stages. Where, where, where and how is that happening for Wallace at this time? Some good questions to ask. But the Holy Spirit is working this in you, his church. He is the one applying in you the incredible salvation that we have in Christ. He's the one shaping our hearts for mission because of who we belong to, a missional God who says, go. Who says, go. The Holy Spirit is the one who is making you more like the one you worship. For some, you just need to be encouraged that that's happening. And it's happening. Some of that I've gotten to see in your own lives and your friends and spouses and, and siblings can maybe share the rest of that story. They'll probably tell you the places that you need to work harder. <laughs> but it's happening because God is faithful. He is the one doing this work in us. And he will continue to do this work in us as his church. I've enjoyed scratching the surface of the topic of worship with you in this series. I look forward to growing together in our understanding of what worship is, what it does to us, who it is making us, who we want to be as a church, where are we being sent as a church as well, because worship and mission go hand in hand. What a treasure and what a blessing it is to serve a God who invites us into his mission, to reflect his goodness, his loveliness and beauty as far as the curse is found. May we, may our worship always be the key to our mission as the church, and may our mission always reflect what 
the one we worship. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we come to your table that you would show us the extent of the type of missional God that you are. And as we encounter the questions that we have asked even here in the we look at your word, as we see who you are, as we see how our worship is connected to mission. Father, strengthen us for the task at hand. Show us through Christ who you are calling us to be and how you are making us into that community as people who long to worship you with all of their hearts. Would you not just do that for us in this room, but would you do that for those outside of these walls, this community, who will be impacted by your gospel, who would be impacted by the hands and feet of Jesus to go and to show the grace and the mercy to a world that desperately needs it, to show the gospel to those who haven't heard it, that you may receive the glory in all of this, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.